Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. This is my very first show of the year 2021, and I have four brand new movies to review for you. Two of them are Netflix originals, one is a Disney Plus original, and one is an HBO Max original, or should I say an HBO original that I have seen because of the fact that I subscribe now to HBO Max. That was one of my New Year's resolutions, probably one of the, hopefully one of many that I'm going to keep. I've made my New Year's resolutions, but one of my biggest New Year's resolutions is to continue on with this show, which is exactly what I'm doing. So now that 2020 is officially in the rearview mirror, it actually makes sense to have my first movie that I'm going to be reviewing be Death to 2020, which is a British mockumentary which was released on Netflix right before New Year's. And it was created by Black Mirror creators Charlie Brooker and Annabelle Jones under their Broke and Bones production. That's Broke and and bones, even though it sounds like broken bones, although I'm pretty sure that is that was the intention when they created that production company. And it is a Netflix original. And it makes sense that the creators of Black Mirror would create a mockumentary about 2020, considering that people have been talking about Black Mirror ever since it was a Netflix original, particularly here in the United States. But people have been talking about the world being like Black Mirror ever since the 2016 election. And it's been going downhill from there. Even though Death to 2020 is a mockumentary, I have to say that the events, all the events that happened in this film are true. The mockumentary part is basically all the actors in the film playing different characters and having their unique take on 2020. And this movie definitely hammers home what a messed up year 2020 was, and not for no good reason. Sometimes the jokes were a bit hit or miss, but I did actually like the input from some of these actors who are playing other characters, but... With the exceptions of those who are being flagrantly racist, their views on 2020 are probably the views of the actors themselves. For example, Samuel L. Jackson is the first character or the first person playing a character being interviewed for this movie. He plays a character by the name of Dash Brackett, who is a reporter for the New Yorkerly News. Now, you don't have to live in New York City to know that New Yorkerly News is not a real newspaper, although it might be a good name for a website. But either way, Samuel L. Jackson is well known enough that you know he's playing a fictional character and he's not a newspaper reporter. But what's significant is that the filmmakers behind the camera are speaking to Dash Brackett, Samuel L. Jackson's character, about their look back at 2020, which is what they're trying to do with their documentary. And Samuel L. Jackson puts it bluntly, in a way I won't repeat verbatim, but he basically says this. 
Why the F would you want to do that? The reason I say why the F is because this is a show that is clean. (laughs) 95% clean. I certainly wouldn't say what the F stands for, but knowing Samuel L. Jackson, like many of us do, you could probably figure out exactly what he means by that. Also interviewed here is Tennyson Foss, who is a British historian, played by Hugh Grant in a typical smug kind of way, but also Hugh Grant has moments where he says things that are blaringly racist and he didn't and he doesn't realize it, like many people do. For instance, he downplays the Black Lives Matter movement and um shall we say counters that with all lives matter, which isn't flagrantly racist, but we kind of know, uh, many of us, those of us who are more enlightened, that, yeah, All Lives Matter is downplaying what the Black Lives Matter movement actually means. I also really liked Leslie Jones in this movie as a fictional psychologist named Dr. Ma- Maggie Gravel, who is a behavioral psychologist who basically loses all faith in humanity, as many of us probably want to do, uh, or wanted to do last year. Uh, also of note, Lisa Kudrow plays a non-official conservative spokesperson by the name of Janetta Grace Susan, who undoubtedly has some of the best lines in this movie, which would be hilarious if Lisa Kudrow was not channeling Kellyanne Conway, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, or several other blindly ignorant Trump supporters. And yes, this is my opinion, but some of the best lines from Lisa Kudrow are when she's um, talking about the Trump impeachment, which was the biggest news of 2020 before COVID-19 hit. And she is denying that Trump did anything wrong, just like his real spokesperson, spokespeople, and Republicans in office were. And she goes as far as to not to deny that Ukraine actually existed when the filmmakers point out to her that Donald Trump's misgivings have been proven from an actual transcript. This is all too familiar territory. And again, Lisa Kudrow, I think sells this really well. And surprisingly does not remind me of Phoebe from Friends, for instance. There's also another standout performance from Kristen Milotti, who plays a self-described soccer mom by the name of Kathy Flowers, who is, and I've and people who have watched this movie with me can can say this exact same thing, that she is a stereotypical Karen. The biggest laugh-out-loud moments are when Krista Milotti is uh, (laughs) doing things that certain Karens have been caught on camera doing this year, like, for instance, (laughs) asking for ID from a black person who's just sitting in his car when she doesn't believe that he actually owns the car. And to say what else she does uh, while caught on camera would just ruin the surprise for you. And this movie, I think, hammers home, with the help of Lawrence Fishburne being the narrator, how messed up the year 2020 was. And I think that works pretty well. And I 
I also think that it uses a lot of news footage, which probably would not have been hard to get, which I think hammers home the point that the funniest parts about this movie are the characters like the ones played by Leslie Jones, Lisa Kudrow, and Kristen Milotti, who are playing stereotypes. But the rest of it, the other 75% of it, which is pretty much archive footage, and ones that is that are accurately represented by Lawrence Fishburne's narration just basically touches the tip of the iceberg in terms of how messed up the year 2020 was. And a lot of people are saying that 2020 is now in the rearview mirror, which it is, but just because it's 2021 does not mean that everything is just going to stop being bad. We still have a long way to go. And I think I join many other people going into 2021 being cautiously optimistic, but focusing on cautiously. But getting back to this documentary in hand, I did not expect a a documentary or a mockumentary about how bad the year 2020 was right before New Year's Day 2021 hit. But... I'm still glad that I got it. I think the the documentary missed the mark when it was focused on uh, the unlikelihood of Joe Biden being president. And the only really comical things that this this documentary could say about Joe Biden was that he's old. And they made a bunch of age jokes, like for instance, he was at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II back in 1953 when he was an old man. Ho, ho, ho. They also mentioned when he chose Kamala Harris as his running mate. Kamala Harris is 55 years old, which is almost a quarter of how old Joe Biden is. Again, ha, ha, ha. But I did think that when the documentary focused on some of the actors who are playing (laughs) caricatures of real people in this world, the ones who downplay the Black Lives Matter movement or the ones who defend Donald Trump implicitly or explicitly, that's when it really shined. I just didn't really think that some other things worked particularly well. For instance, Kumail Nanjiani plays a CEO of a website by the name of Shrieker. His name is Bark Multiverse, which is a ridiculous name that kind of goes against the comical idea of name. In other words, there's a rule in comedy where you don't make somebody's name absolutely ridiculous because that just is too desperate for... That just makes the writer or the creator of these characters, way too desperate for laughs. And Kumail Nanjiani didn't really have anything particularly funny to say, which is really unfortunate. I was also a little disappointed by Tracy Ullman as Queen Elizabeth II, because she had one not particularly fresh age joke about Joe Biden, and well, I would say Queen Elizabeth II is one to talk, but this is an actress playing Queen Elizabeth II, so I'll let it slide for Queen Elizabeth. However, I didn't think other things about Tracy Ullman playing Queen Elizabeth II really hit the mark. For instance, I couldn't really understand what 
Tracy Ullman was saying without subtitles. And there were also other news that was focused on in this 2020 documentary, particularly about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's separation from the royal family, which I don't really care about. And I don't think, given all the horrible things that have happened in 2020, I don't think many other people care about it either. So it was a little too much focus on that. And I also cringed at an actor by the name of Joe Keery, who plays a gig economy, economy millennial by the name of Duke Goolies. Again, ridiculous name, not particularly funny. But Joe Keery is a white man who was talking about his support for the Black Lives Matter movement. And when it shows him on a YouTube video going through black neighborhoods and getting on a bullhorn and saying, I am one of you, perhaps I'm black myself. I could only bury my head in my hands. It, it wasn't funny. It was particularly uh, cringeworthy. I also didn't particularly like The Average Citizen, who is this actress by the name of Diane Morgan, playing a woman by the name of Gemma Narek. Again, stupid name. I didn't think she had anything particularly funny to say, so her parts were just kind of fast-forwardable. But I do have to say that Death to 2020 was probably a good enough send-off to the year 2020, which is one of those years which on which documentary filmmakers, more serious and not, will inevitably look back. And <sighs> I think in the words of Samuel L. Jackson, why the F would you want to do that? But if there's one way to look back at it, not in anger, it is watching this documentary. I just wish... This mockumentary, I should say, was a little bit sharper in its comedic timing. And I also think that it didn't stick it to President Trump as much as I think it should have. But then again, we've had four years of other <laughs> comedy talk shows sticking it to President Trump. And they're going to continue sticking it to him until January 20th of this year. So Death of 2020 had some disappointing moments, but it is a checkout in my book because it's worth seeing for seeing Samuel L. Jackson, Lisa Kudrow, Leslie Jones, and Kristen Milotti in their performances, which are stunningly accurate if you've lived through the year that I have. I just wish the comic writing could have been a little bit better. And maybe if it was written by... Writers from either The Late Show with Stephen Colbert or Late Night with Seth Meyers or The Daily Show. I think it actually would have been sharper. But all in all, Death to 2020 is basically what it is in that it was a send-off to an exceptionally terrible year for the world at large. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Soul. 
Soul is a movie that debuted on Disney Plus on December 25th, 2020, and it was theatrically released in other countries without the streaming service. But this is a movie that is the first Disney Pixar film that was released straight to Disney Plus. If it had not been for the pandemic, Soul probably would have been released, actually most definitely would have been released in theaters. This is directed by Pete Docter, who is a Pixar director who has directed such feature films as Up from 2009, Inside Out from 2015, and he also worked as a writer for other classic Disney Pixar films such as the first two Toy Story movies, Monsters Incorporated, which he also directed. That was actually his directorial debut, and Wally. So very much like Wally, Soul is a movie that deals with a lot of adult concepts, particularly when it comes to the afterlife and some supernatural concepts. It's a movie that tells you the story about a black music teacher and aspiring jazz musician named Joe Gardner, who is voiced by Jamie Foxx. And he teaches at um, a middle school in New York City to make ends meet. His dreams of a career in jazz go against his mother's wishes. His mother, by the name, by the way, is named Libba, and she's voiced by Felicia Rashad. And Joe finds himself eventually <clears throat> auditioning successfully for a local jazz band, but he, in his excitement and also being on a cell phone and not watching where he's going, he falls down a manhole and finds himself as a soul headed to what's known as the great beyond, which is assumed to be heaven, hopefully heaven, or at least uh, the way that it's animated in this movie, it looks like heaven. But in his reluctance to die, he ends up falling off the track to the great beyond and dropping into the great before which, in other words, can be described as pre-existence. Some Catholics might be able to call it purgatory. It's basically where these soul counselors who look like Picasso drawings but are all named Jerry for some reason prepare unborn souls for life. So Joe finds himself actually not looking like himself in the real world. He actually ends up looking like a a white speck. I'm not going to say exactly what he looks like because I want to keep this clean, this, this show clean, but he finds himself actually becoming a mentor for an unborn soul to enter into the world. And that unborn soul is named 22, who's voiced by Tina Fey. 22 is very cynical and she has reportedly re- remained in the great before for several millennia, and she has apparently, according to this movie, been counseled by the souls of such dignitaries as Mother Teresa and Muhammad Ali, all of whom, despite their great magnanimous qualities, can't actually train 22 to become a spirit or a soul that enters into the real world. Meanwhile, Joe is trying to get back to his old life in New York City, and 
he's the Jerry's <clears throat> make it clear to him that he's not officially dead, but he has some work to do before <laughs> coming back to real life. These are concepts that I've seen in other movies before, but I really did like it. I thought that the characters in the film were wonderful. I loved uh, Jamie Foxx as the character Joe Gardner. And Joe Gardner, I think, is supposed to be a character in his late 20s or early 30s, whereas Jamie Foxx is in his early 50s. But I'm actually very surprised that Jamie Foxx sounds youthful enough to pass himself off as somebody who's at least 35 years old. And he does a very good job as the voice of the lead character. And I never would have thought that Jamie Foxx and Tina Fey would be in a movie together. They're not actually in a uh, live-action movie together, but still, they had some very unique chemistry that I think made their characters work particularly well, especially when they eventually venture into the real-life world. And not only that, but Soul also, for a movie about a, an aspiring jazz pianist, has some great uh, jazz music within it. There are actually original compositions for the film that were created under the sessions of musician John Baptiste, who is the band leader for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And if you've ever seen The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, you probably know, especially now since John Baptiste and many of the Late Show personalities are quarantined right now and doing their show basically via Zoom, you can see John Baptiste play the piano. He is exceptionally great at doing so. And also, while other various jazz musicians who are still a big name in the jazz world, like Herbie Hancock and Terry Lynn Carrington, were consulted by the film's producers for this movie, the music for the film was actually done by, of all people, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Now, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross have mainly done movies for David Fincher films like The Social Network, Seven, and Mank, just to name a few. I would have never thought in a hundred years that Trent Reznor, the frontman for Nine Inch Nails, which is one of those industrial rock bands that wore their parental advisory label with pride, would have ever done the music for a Disney film. It, it kind of blows my mind. But what's even more surprising about it is that the music for the film is mainly jazz-based. And I would have never thought of Trent Reznor being well-versed in jazz, but I got to give the guy a lot of credit. Him and Atticus Ross... Particularly, but I think that actually John Baptiste is the one that really gave this movie soul, for lack of a better term. I really love the animation, the story, even though it's something we've seen before, was exceptional. I thought Jamie Foxx was the perfect voice for the lead character, Joe Garner. I thought that Tina Fey was uh, a unique surprise as a, a, stole, a soul that is really getting dragged, kicking, and screaming into the real world from the great before. But what I really liked about this film is how imaginative it was about complex psychological and metaphysical concepts such as 
life after death. Very similar to Pete Doctor's take on the conscious and the subconscious in Inside Out. And also, Pete Doctor's work on Wally, which which he didn't direct, but he did help uh, co-write, shows that Pete Doctor in particular is among the writers and filmmakers within the Disney Pixar canon who's not afraid to tackle adult themes and negative emotions. While it would be a bit sacrilege to compare Wally to Soul, with Wally, I think, being one of Pixar's best films, I did think Soul was among Disney Pixar's better films. I would have liked to have seen this on the big screen, but given the state of COVID-19 these days and the fact that I'm avoiding theaters for that one and only reason, Soul is still a knockout on my book. It is refreshingly original, maybe not in its theme, but definitely in its characters and how it ties everything together with some fantastic jazz music. And I think this movie works incredibly well. And if I get the chance to see this movie in on Blu-ray or 4K, I will definitely take up that opportunity for sure. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is a Netflix original film that debuted on the platform on December 18th and is directed by George C. Wolf. George C. Wolf is an African-American director who's had several years of filmmaking and uh, theater experience. For instance, he, in his theater experience, he wrote such uh, big Broadway hits as Jelly's Last Jam, Angels in America, Bring Into Noise, Bring Into Funk, and that's just to name a few. In terms of filmmaking, he made his directorial debut in 1993 with the little scene Fires in the Mirror. And he also directed the HBO film Lackawanna Blues from 2005, which was a fantastic ensemble cast movie. He also directed Night in Rodanth, You're Not You, and another HBO film that was critically acclaimed, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. So this is George C. Wolfe's first film as a director in about three years. And Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is based on the play of the same name by August Wilson. August Wilson being the late great playwright who also wrote the play Fences from 1984 that was made into a film years later, directed by and starring Denzel Washington. And Denzel Washington in particular has been adamant about bringing August Wilson's plays to the big screen, and he's been successful so far. Even though Denzel Washington does not act in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, he does serve as the executive producer. It's a film that is, as far as I can tell, 
is inspired by the life of Ma Rainey, but is not actually based on real events. But it's more historical fiction. It is set primarily in a recording studio in 1927 Chicago and explores themes of artistic control, commercial exploitation, and systematic and sometimes violent racism. And Ma Rainey in this movie, who at around 1927 is one of the biggest blues stars in the world and is still considered to this day by historians and blues enthusiasts as the mother of the blues. Ma Rainey is played by Viola Davis in an almost unrecognizable but still superb performance. She's actually mentioned first. She's given top billing, Viola Davis is, for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, but this movie really belongs to Chadwick Boseman. And this is actually Chadwick Boseman's final film. But Chadwick Boseman died, sadly, while this film was in post-production. But fortunately, he gave enough of a superb performance in this film that you would never guess that this was his last performance. In other words, there are times when an actor is working on a film and they're about halfway or a quarter way through and then they die but the filmmakers still have to finish up the film without them. And sometimes it's kind of obvious to see where stand-ins are for actors who have died. Like, for instance, um, Bruce Lee's last film was, I think, 20% of the way finished. And the people who released the film took some very low-budget measures to try to make up for Bruce Lee's absence. The same could be said for several several other actors who died during production of a film, but fortunately, in, in terms of Chadwick Boseman's final performance in this film, he had completed that before he died. And he does a fantastic job in this movie as a an ambitious trumpeter in Ma Rainey's band named Levy Green, who I don't think actually existed, but I could be wrong about that. But Levy Green is very young. Even though Chadwick Boseman was 43 when he filmed this role, he definitely doesn't look a day over 25 in looks as, as well as, unfortunately, maturity. But he's very ambitious. He is certainly influenced by some of the newer jazz that's coming out in the late 1920s. And that goes in direct juxtaposition to the beliefs and philosophies of the other members of Ma Rainey's band, including Toledo, who's the pianist, who's played by veteran actor Glenn Turman, who I particularly remember from the movie Cooley High, which was a coming-of-age film that came out around the same time as American Graffiti, but because it had a largely black cast, American Graffiti received a much wider um, recognition than Cooley High did. But Cooley High is still an excellent film. The other members of Ma Rainey's band include Cutler, a guitar and trombone player, played by Coleman Domingo, as well as a double bass player named Slow Drag, played by Michael Potts. And a lot of time is shown with these four men interacting with one another about philosophy and other heavy topics 
in the green room as they're waiting for their producer, Mel Sturdivant, a white man played by Johnny Coyne, to have them record their sessions with Ma Rainey. So I wouldn't say Viola Davis takes a backseat to these four actors or Chadwick Boseman, but even though Viola Davis is not in the film as much as these four actors, when she comes in and she starts recording her blues sessions, the music is great and Viola Davis does a great job probably knocking the dust off of this music that's almost literally a hundred years old. And I think when people listen to it these days, it's usually either on CD or on MP3. And the, the way that this music, which is very antique, is reformatted into g- digital form makes the music sound scratchy. But I, I guess there's only so much a person can do, but it is great to see this music get performed, but also these four band members in and out of the recording studio give some very poignant and heavy philosophies on life with Chadwick Boseman's character, Levy Green being more of the antagonist to the more down to earth Toledo Cutler and slow drag, especially when Levy Green's atheist's views come into play here. There's a lot to like about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. There's particularly the title of the movie, which is based on the name of a an actual song by Ma Rainey that must have been pretty controversial when it came out, but it it was a bestseller and it made a ton of money. And I think actually this movie felt a bit less like a play when seeing it on the screen than Denzel Washington's Fences did. But it had some great set design and the costumes were really uh, well put together. But primarily the acting in this film is what sells it. And Chadwick Boseman in particular, does an amazing job playing Levy Green. And the times that Viola Davis is on screen as Ma Rainey, even though it's deceptively less than you might think given the title of the movie, she's still excellent. Not only when she's singing, but also when she's dealing with the owner of the recording studio as well as her white manager, Irvin, played by Jeremy Shamos. And basically trying to get her demands in action. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, there are a lot of great things to say about this film. I wouldn't go as far as to say it's better than Fences, but like Fences, Viola Davis turns in an amazing performance for which I believe she should be nominated for an Oscar. And I would love to see Chadwick Boseman be nominated for a posthumous Oscar for Best supporting actor as well. I think he certainly deserves it. And one of the things that made 2020 a terrible year was that we lost Chadwick Boseman in addition to some other uh, beloved people. But what a great final performance to to turn in right here. And I think this will cement Chadwick Boseman's legacy as a great cinematic actor 
And my rating is Black Bottom. In case you didn't realize, it gets my rating of a knockout. I'm not sure of its historical accuracy. I can call it historical fiction, but it's got great performances, particularly by Viola Davis, Chadwick Boseman, and Glenn Turman. It's got amazing set design. Just about everyone in the film acts well, and the costumes are also something to remember as well. But overall, it is a really good testament to the early days of blues, particularly when they were just starting to record the blues. And it also is a testament to August Wilson as a playwright. And if Fences and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom are any indication, I think that any other film that's based on a play by August Wilson should be a great continuation of this playwright's work. And kudos to Denzel Washington for getting this play on the big screen as well. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Let Them All Talk. This is a movie that debuted on HBO on December 10th, 2020, and it's one that I just got to see a short while ago, and I am reviewing it for you right now, particularly because I'm going to be watching more HBO films, especially as this pandemic is raging on and movie theaters are closed. But in addition to my subscribing to HBO Max, I'm also really excited to see some of the shows that are on HBO right now that have gotten critical acclaim, particularly Watchmen. I'm very, very excited about that. But Let Them All Talk is a slow-moving drama that is directed by Steven Soderbergh. And Steven Soderbergh is a prolific director who's actually from Atlanta, Georgia. But he burst onto the indie scene back in... 1989 with his uh, feature film debut, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. He has since gone on to direct several other films of note, including Out of Sight, one of the films that, that made George Clooney into a movie star, particularly when movies like Batman and Robin were aiming to take that away from him. Out of Sight also had a great... Uh, supporting performance by Jennifer Lopez, which unfortunately uh, didn't get quite the recognition uh, retrospectively that it deserves. He also directed Aaron Brockovich and Traffic, both from the year 2000. And what's amazing is that uh, Traffic 
won every Oscar for which it was nominated except for Best Picture. So it was the winner of four Oscars. He also won an Oscar for, or rather, the movie, Aaron Brockovich, won an Oscar for Julia Roberts for Best Actress. Some people say that that uh, win was undeserved. I'm not going to go that far, but I'll just go into some of the other films that (laughs) Steven Soderbergh's directed. He directed Ocean's 11, 12, and 13. And his most recent film uh, was The Laundromat, which came out last year on Netflix. I didn't get to see it, but even though it boasted a great cast, including Meryl Streep, it was not particularly well-received critically. I think that would change with Let Them All Talk. Let Them All Talk also stars Meryl Streep as a famous author, who in this case is fictional, Her name is Alice, and she goes on a luxury cruise trip with her friends and nephew in an effort to find fun and happiness while she comes to terms with her troubled past. Not only is she coming to terms with her troubled past, but she is also trying to write a manuscript, which is a follow-up for a book she wrote back in the 80s, which won her a Pulitzer Prize. So she's one of these authors who... Hasn't written very much, but what little she has written has been critically and commercially acclaimed. The people who join her on this journey include a retiree named Susan, who's voiced by Diane Wiest, and a financially strapped department store clerk named Roberta, who's played by Candace Bergen. Also, Meryl Streep's character's nephew is Tyler, who's played by Lucas Hedges. All these actors combined, just these four, represent more than 20 Oscar nominations and five Oscar wins. Three for Meryl Streep and two for Diane Wiest. Candace Bergen has actually been nominated for an Oscar once, and that was for the movie... um, Oh, boy. It was... If you'll excuse me for just a moment, the movie starting over starring Burt Reynolds and Jill Clayburg. Jill Clayburg was also nominated for um, an Oscar for best leading actress in that role, but didn't win. And ironically enough, Candace Bergen lost her Oscar that year to, you guessed it, Meryl Streep for best supporting actress for Kramer versus Kramer. So even though Candace Bergen hasn't won any Academy Awards, she has won an Emmy for Best Leading Actress in a Comedy for Murphy Brown five times in the 80s and 90s. In fact, she would have won six times if Candace Bergen herself had not approached the Emmy committee and actually told them to withhold her name from the the nominees. That's really impressive, as well as a good show of sportsmanship. But the point is that all three of these actresses are great, and let's not forget Lucas Hedges, who was previously nominated for an Oscar for the movie Manchester by the Sea. He didn't win, but he has been in strong supporting roles in movies such as, since Manchester by the Sea, in movies such as Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Mid-90s, Lady Bird, and Boy Erased, to name a few. And this movie is a slow burner. It's very dialogue heavy and could have been a Broadway play, but it's actually based on a story and screenplay written by Deborah Eisenberg. 
And I, I would have thought this was a play if I didn't know that fact. But Deborah Eisenberg has actually, this is her screenwriting debut, if you can believe it. She's had some acting experience, but she has basically had a filmography that has consisted of brief performances in movies like Marie and Bruce and While We're Young. So to have her first screenplay be made into a movie starring four Academy Award nominees, two Academy Award winners included in them, is very, very impressive. But otherwise, there's not a lot to say other than that about Deborah Eisenberg. But I am very impressed that this movie looks like a, a, a stage show in, in terms of the fact that it's very dialogue heavy and the characters don't move a lot other than going from room to room. And despite its emphasis on literature and it being about writers, it's not based on a book. Now, of course, it's not the only film like this, but when it has these characters who are talking about the process of writing and how some of its difficulties as well as some of the different processes that various authors have in their creative process, you would think this would have been covered in a book. But I I have to give credit to Deborah Eisenberg for writing such a movie that's not based on previously published or previously filmed or acted material. That's very impressive, especially in a day and age where Hollywood is being criticized for not putting things out there that are original. And it is true, a significant portion of movies are based on either TV shows, video games, or other books, primarily in the latter category. Um, But the, the point of Let Them All Talk is the emphasis on the creative process and how much of an influence real life has on fiction, for instance. And it's a movie that could probably be seen again and again, particularly by literary scholars as well as writers. And I was watching this with my girlfriend, who's an aspiring writer herself, and she actually told me as we were watching this, this movie makes me want to write. So even though this this film doesn't have a lot going for it in terms of it's, it's not a compelling story that will draw in people who are, for instance, fans of action films, nor really should it. But it is a very intelligent film. It's a film that takes its time. It develops its characters particularly well. And also, it makes all the characters round and interesting. I was especially taken by Candace Bergen's uh, character here, who, as we're told, has been through a messy divorce is financially strapped, which is why at her age she's working at a department store. But she also finds that she could potentially be based on a major character that Meryl Streep's character created. So there's some tension there as well. Also, Lucas Hedges' character, Tyler, who is Meryl Streep's character's nephew, has some has a very interesting journey as a character himself. 
not only is he going on this beautiful luxury cruise, which if I set foot on this boat, I wouldn't want to leave, but he also develops a relationship with Meryl Streep's character's literary agent, whose name is Karen, who's played by a lovely young actress by the name of Gemma Chan. And there is a bit of sexual tension between the two of them, but there's also a conflict where Karen, Gemma Chan's character, is desperate for a manuscript from Alice for their next book because that's her job. And she also has Lucas Hedges' character almost spy on uh, Meryl Streep's character just to see how the manuscript is developing. And even though Alice has a lot of clout in the sense that she wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book and her name is still a big deal, even outside of literary circles, the publishing company still is a business and they do have some deadlines to meet even amongst the creative process. So Let Them All Talk is an incredibly intelligent film. Steven Soderbergh shows that he can direct actors, particularly veteran actors, extremely well in his 30-plus years in directing films. And Let Them All Talk is not for everyone, but it is a mature adult film that has some funny parts to it, some great set design, and of course, some great acting from the four principal actors, Meryl Streep, Diane Wiest, Candace Bergen, and Lucas Hedges, and Let Them All Talk gets my rating of a knockout. It is a very mature film. It's about the creative process, but it is a surprisingly original film that is written by somebody who did not get this from a book or from a successful Broadway play, And it is very surprising that there aren't more of those that are being written. But for somebody who had their first script and story being made into a movie directed by Steven Soderbergh and starring Meryl Streep, just for starters, that is a huge deal. But Let Them All Talk is completely worth that effort. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. This has been my first show of the year 2021, and it is so great to be in the studio recording this show for you. This is one of the biggest bits of livelihood of my life right now. And I also should note that I have been hosting Words on Film For almost seven years. Is this my seven year anniversary? Not technically. I started this show on Boston Free Radio on January 7th, 2014. And except for a brief hiatus where I moved from Boston to Nashville, I have not stopped doing this show. And I won't stop doing it. You can't stop me from doing it. But I'll... I'll, save the sentimentalities for 
my show next week. But meanwhile, I'm going to get into a segment where I detail you to you a spoken word preview of movies that are coming out on popular streaming services for the week of January 3rd through January 8th, 2021. I got to get used to saying 2021, not 2020. But there are some Netflix originals that are going to be premiering. It being January has not stopped the flow of Netflix originals. There is, uh, let's see, on Tuesday, November 5th, excuse me, November On Tuesday, January 5th, there are several series that are going to be premiering. One is called Gabby's Dollhouse. The other is called History of Swear Words, which even though I'm not going to be reviewing it for the show because it's a series, not a movie, I'm very interested in seeing that. Also, another film that's going to be making an appearance on Netflix is going to be The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I'm not sure if that is going to be the original Girl with the Dragon Tattoo with uh, Gemma Armington or if it's going to be the remake directed by David Fincher starring Rooney Mara and Daniel Craig. I don't know, but be on the lookout for that on Tuesday, January 5th on Netflix. On Wednesday, January 6th, there is a Netflix original that's going to be premiering that's called Ratones Paranoicos, the band that rocked Argentina. I have never heard of this band, but I am immediately intrigued. So this is a documentary. It's called Ratones Paranoicos, which, if I'm not mistaken, means Paranoid Rats. And that's that's an awesome name for a band in Spanish or in English. Uh, I have never heard of any Argentinian bands, let alone this one. But I am totally into rockumentaries, and this might be a pleasant surprise. So that is going to be one that is going to be premiering on January 6th. I will see it, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.